This is the Larry Hardesty Show on 98.7 ESPN New York. At 1-800-919-3776, special Sunday edition, Hardesty until 6 on 98.7 ESPN. Thank you, Gordon Damer. I heard you talking draft. I know you're concerned about your Miami Dolphins. It's going to be all right. We've got a jam-packed show for you today on the Soulful Sunday. But first, before we get started, and we got, you know, JP along for the ride and everything else, I wanted to introduce you guys to a very special guest I have right here. My grandson stopped by the Hardesty Studios, and uh, I want to introduce him to you. His name is Jermaine Edwards. Hi, Jermaine. Hi. So Jermaine is playing football now. He's 10 years old. He'll be 11 next month. And Jermaine, I want, since we're talking draft and we're talking football, I want you to share uh, a little bit about your football team. Tell us about your team, the name of your team, and your positions. Uh, The name of my team is the Long Island Renegades, and the positions I play are middle linebacker, outside linebacker, defensive end, and backup wide receiver. Which of those positions do you like better? Uh, Backup wide receiver. So you want to catch the football and score touchdowns? Yeah, basically. Yeah, just like you do when you beat your papa in NFL 20, 21, 22, 23, stuff like that, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. All right. So that is now you're looking for the next number one draft choice in about about 10 years or so, right? Yeah. All right. Thanks for stopping by. See you soon. See you soon. All right. My grandson, Jermaine Edwards. I thought it was nice for him to stop by and just say, uh, you know, hello, what's going on? This is an interesting situation that we've got here. All right, football-wise. And, of course, we're going to keep you up to date with the Yankees. Yankees are doing well. Yankees, are, Corey Kluber has found the fountain of youth. He's just, he was rolling, wasn't he? He's just rolling today. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Of course, we'll talk about the Knicks. Of course, we'll talk Mets. Of course, we'll talk, you know, the Nets. As you heard in the Sports Center at the top of the hour, we'll be hitting the court as they uh, prepare for the postseason because, really, that's what it's all about, really, right, is the postseason. But we have a poll question up for you. We haven't done this in a while. At Hardesty ESPN at ESPN NY 98 underscore 7 FM. All right. Here's our poll question today. And I want you guys to be honest. Okay. I want you to be honest. I don't want you to, you know, short shift either team. Okay. I want you to be honest about this. And my poll question is as follows. I want you to grade the Jets and Giants on their 2021 draft choices. If the grade is lower than an A, I want you to tell me what they could have done to get an A. All right, real simple. Grade the Jets and Giants on their 2021 draft choices. If the grade is lower than an A, what could they have done to get the A? At Hardest to ESPN, at ESPN NY, 98 underscore 7 FM. Now, obviously, we knew what the Jets were going to do with their number one pick, right? That was clear. That we didn't, They didn't fool anybody. They didn't take a last-minute change and go with Justin Fields, or they didn't come up with a unbelievable trade to bring Aaron Rodgers here. They stuck with what they were going to do, and that was Zach Wilson. I did like that they moved up to get Tucker, the guard from USC, because here's what they understand. All right. They know that the offensive line needs to get better. And you like that what Joe Douglas has done following Becton last year. He's got his left tackle. 
Now he's going to move in and he's going to have his left guard in Tucker. So that side, your blind side of your quarterback is all set. Now the question is going to be, will they be able to get the veterans on the other side to do what Alan Fanica did for DeBrickershaw, Ferguson, and Nick Mangle, right, Jets fans? Where you learned, they were able to learn that veteran savvy. They were able to learn the veteran smarts, the experience from Fanica, the Hall of Famer, right? And that's what led them to be so successful as they were on the offensive line for the Jets for many, many years. So the question is going to be, do they have the right experience offensive linemen still on that offensive line that can help teach these young players? That's going to be the next step, the next question. Also, when you look at what they did later, and obviously they traded, they, they lost their number, uh, their third-round picks to move up to get Tucker. I get it. I understand it. Uh, in the second round, they took Elijah Moore, the wide receiver from Ole Miss, slot receiver type, guy who can, you know, maybe not a speed merchant, but a guy who, who can take the ball and take the top off a of defense in the slot. That's what you want. So, and, and it's funny, I'm looking at all the comments all uh, all weekend, and everybody is saying the same thing, right? Boy, too bad they didn't do this for Sam Darnold. <laughs> Boy, if they had done this for Sam Darnold, maybe he'd still be the quarterback here. And it's, uh, it, it's an interesting thought. I get what they're saying. Uh, and listen, you know what it means? It means that they learn from their mistake. It means that Joe Douglas is going to do his best to make this team a complete team. And I'm sure that Jet fans would have liked to see a little bit more defensively, but then you look at the last, what, six picks, and they were all defense. I mean, you know, after Michael Carter, the running back out of North Carolina, then, you know, it took another Michael Carter who was a who – was who was a, a defender, a D-back a out of Duke in five. Then it also took Jamie and Sherwood, a linebacker from Auburn. And they took another corner. So I think they did a decent job in trying to balance the needs. Remember, they need a lot. Okay? They need a lot. This is a team that needed to get better in a lot of different areas. And so when you look at what they did, and of course, only time will tell. Now, the next part is to see what they will do with the undrafted free agents, right? What, what added value do you bring to your team? So that is the next step to see what happens with the Jets. When you look at the Giants, I think, listen, the, the, the top story for me with the Giants is Dave Gellerman traded down not once but twice. <laughs> That's the top story for me. Everything else is just, okay, what did they do? We'll see. I think Kadarius Tony from the people I spoke to, great wide receiver is a guy that's going to give you some more speed, some added depth, as they also try to give Daniel Jones some weapons. So, listen, they, they've, they've done a great job. Hopefully, we'll see. But I think what it was a strategic draft in the sense of Gellerman looking to get some more draft choices for next season in exchange. Now, does it – are we going to give him a lot of credit? Are we going to say, well, probably 
the guys he wanted in the first round were gone by the time he drafted. So it was better for him to trade down to get somebody to trade up. As he played, let's make a deal with Chicago, who now has Justin Fields as their quarterback. And so he got some added value with the draft. So I think that's a good deal. That's a smart move from Dave Gellerman. I like what he did in this draft. So now, once again, it's going to be up to the players. How will they perform? And how will the coaching staff embrace them and work them in? That's going to be the big money question, right? Mama Jeff Connection. Home of the people, the bomb. On the Sunday, doing it in 3D. on 98.7 ESPN, 1-800-919-3776. I see you popping your head over there, out there in the car. You haven't heard this in a minute. I got you. At Hardesty ESPN, at ESPN NY 98 underscore 7 FM, that's where you can answer our question. You can also answer it on the phone. The question is, I want you to grade the Jets and Giants on their 2021 draft choices. Now, if the grade is lower than an A, I want you to tell me what they could have done to get an A. Maybe they needed another wide receiver. Maybe you wanted a tight end. Maybe you wanted another defensive player. Maybe you wanted a pass rusher, a bona fide pass rusher. What was it that prevented you from giving either the Jets or Giants an A after, you know, your initial reaction to their 2021 NFL draft. Mike Tannenbaum was on with DCR, DPH or Canteen Rothenberg, and he spoke to them about what the Jets and Giants did. Let's see what he thought about the Giants. I love the trade. I don't like the trade. I love the trade. I, th- I thought they did a great job, really maximized value to get a one and a four next year on a team that presumably won't be very good. I thought that was outstanding by uh, Dave Gettleman. I just thought that when you look at the way the draft was falling and their roster, I'm a big Darius Slayton fan. I think he's a good young emerging player. They got Kenny Galladay. They have Sterling Shepard at least for a year. And, you know, we could call Evan Ingram a tight end, but he's really a receiver. And there's a ton of receivers in this year's draft. And when you look at Nate Solder is probably one and done at best for the Giants. And someone like Christian Darrisaw is there or Quiddy Pay, the pass rusher. I just thought given the depth of the receiver position, not only in the draft, but with the Giants and the fact that they needed a pass rusher and a tackle, I was surprised that they took Tony. And that was interesting, right? But it just seems as though that they are determined to put different offensive players. You know, you got Saquon Barkley coming back, so you got your ground game settled. So they knew that they were going to come back and have some more offensive weapons, and that's what they decided to do for Daniel Jones. So, you know, I hear what I, I kind of agree with Mike Tannenbaum. I thought, sure, they would go after a real bona fide, bona fide pass rusher that's going to be somebody that you could say, okay, this is what's happening. Maybe they felt that, listen, what Patrick Graham did last year with that Giants defense, he'll scheme. We're, we're good. Let's work on the offensive side. Let's score as many points as possible, and we'll worry about the defense or we'll figure out. What are we going to do with the defense later? Maybe they'll find a, a pass rusher from an undrafted free agent pool, uh, pool, and what they'll do is they'll coach them up and put them in certain schemes and maybe third down or passing situations or maybe the nickel and dime defense, and they'll have somebody there to do something. But uh, I agree with Mike Tannenbaum there. Let's see what he thought about what the Jets did.
All right, we'll hear from Mike Tannenbaum on. Yeah, I do. And I think if they put him on the left side, you know, they got him and Makai Becton, and that's a great foundation. You know, the only concern you would have with Zach Wilson is, again, we all have to retrain ourselves. Can he withstand the rigors of a 17-game regular season? You know, he's a little slightly built, and I think getting offensive linemen was a really smart move. You know, you could certainly quibble and say giving up two-thirds was a lot. You know, they did get a fourth back. And if Vera Tucker turns out to be a 10-year star, no one's going to complain about it down the road. Yeah, listen, you knew that the price was going to be steep, right, to move up to get that player because you moved up nine spots. You had the 23rd pick, you moved up nine spots. And he was a sought-after guy. But you needed a tackle. You needed to address the offensive line early in a big spot. And I think they did the right thing. That's what they were supposed to do. That's what they did. And uh, listen, right now, on paper, your left side's in pretty good shape. Now you will sit down, you'll address what happens with the center and the right side, and you'll figure out what's going to happen there, all right, and what you need to do to improve on it. But I like what they did as far as adding speed, as one of the other callers mentioned. It's a faster team. You know, you've got uh, you've got some returning veterans on that squad. Uh, you know, the Jets, in theory, in theory, offensively are far better than they were last season. John Zimawa. Hey, John, you're next on 98.7. Hey, Larry, how are you? Larry, how are you? Uh, When the Jets finished their last pick in the sixth round, I gave them an A-. minus. There was one guy I wanted them to draft, Mm -hmm. and it was uh, the guy Yaboa, the tight end from Old Miss. Mm -hmm. And about 20 minutes after the seventh round ended, they signed him as a free agent. So I went from an A- minus back to an A. We got Kenny (laughs) Yaboa. as the tight end that we needed, it was perfect. I, like, that stuff doesn't happen to Jet fans. We're all online. We're saying, draft your bow, draft your bow, draft your bow. <laughs> Turns out, about 45 minutes later, he was still there, and we signed him. It was great. And home, run, home run draft, top to bottom. Okay, John. I like that. Thanks for the phone call. That's very rare <laughs> that you hear people very happy with their team's draft. Vinny's on the island. Hey, Vinny, you're next on 98.7. Hey, good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing great, Vinny. What's up? Uh, so I, I'll give the Jets a, a, a B plus. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think they met a lot of needs. I love what they did in the first round. I did not mind them trading up at all. Uh, the what I would have liked to see them do, I actually would have liked to see them trade down in the second round, go to the middle or, or back half, pick up maybe you know recoup one of those third round picks, and take another into your offensive lineman. I think that would have given them an A in, in my book. But, uh, you know, overall, I think it was a really good draft. What was uh, the best part of the draft for you? For, for the Jets? What was the uh, best really, part? What was their best I, move I, for you? I, I really liked going up to get Barry Tucker. I, I liked him coming into the draft. I actually called in a couple weeks ago and said, you know, what are, what are the odds that he falls to 23? And clearly, the Jets were, were sold on him. And uh, you know, I, I you know, I, I'm a you know early in my in my early 30s, so I haven't seen much success. But when they were successful in the in the you know uh, late you know 2009, 2010, they had a really good offensive line. And when they had those back-to-back picks with Mangold and Ferguson, that was the you know the really the DNA of that team. And I think if they can get back to that, you know, that's going to get them back to uh, you know hopefully some sustained success. Well, that's going to be the key, Vinny. Thanks for the phone call. And listen, and I always say this, 
I don't care what kind of offense or defense you're running. I don't care what the fad offense is. I don't care what everybody talks about, whether it's run and shoot, pistol, uh, you know, whatever. Whatever. You, you, you name the defense and the offense, I don't care. If you don't have the players in the trenches to, A, protect the quarterback, or B, get to the quarterback, depending on which side of the ball we're talking about, you're not winning. It's very simple. You're not winning. You have to be able to control the trenches. Solid offensive line helps your offense. Great defensive line helps your defense and your secondary. It just does. That, that's the way it is. And all the different new gadget plays and stuff like that, listen, four wides, five wides, I, I got it. You can't block them or keep them out, they're not going to complete the pass. Dylan's in Jersey. Hey, Dylan, you're next on 98.7. Hey, how's it going? I just want to talk about how happy I am about the Jets. Hey, and, uh, I, w- I would have been happy if uh, we didn't even draft any defense at all and we just kept going offense. But uh, it doesn't matter to me. I just like that they're putting in the effort on offense. That's all I need, honestly. Because, like, you know, I'm suffering as much as anybody else these days with the Jets. But the fact that they're putting in the effort to put in mm-hmm. the draft of, like, getting linemen and protection. And even if Zach Wilson isn't any good, I mean, we can at least have a decent run game if we have a good line, right? Yeah, yeah. And listen, Dylan, thanks for the phone call. The, the offensive line is going to help Zach Wilson a little better, too, because it'll give him some opportunities to throw or to give him some opportunities to see, look for some options. And listen, he's the guy that can move on. The, he can move himself on the run. So, you know, look, your offensive line is key. It always has been. It always will be. And when you look at the success that the team had when they went to back-to-back AFC championships, it was the fact that you had a dominant offensive line that ran the football whenever they wanted to. Teams knew they were going to run the football, and what did they do? They still couldn't stop them. They ran the football. And they made it very easy for Mark Sanchez. Easier. Not very easy. Easier for Mark Sanchez because he didn't have to make plays. They didn't need him to take it upon himself. It was okay. And then they had a solid defense that was a top five defense. So they were able to, listen, if you turned it over on downs, they're like, look, kick the field goal. We'll get it back. We're good. (laughs) Takes a lot of pressure off your young quarterback, right? A lot of pressure off your young quarterback. Hardesty on a Sunday on 98.7 ESPN, 1-800-919-3776. Also via Twitter at Hardesty ESPN at ESPN NY 98 underscore 7 FM. For those of you on hold, hang with me. My guy is here. He's part of our morning show from 5 to 8 a.m. He's part of DPHO Canty and Rothenberg. He is Chris Canty, the Super Bowl champion, the man who... Listen, he's been up 5 o'clock in the morning on a lot of days, so he's he's good. <laughs> he's good for these shows. <laughs> he's He's been watching film earlier than 5 in the morning. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> hey, Chris, what's up, my friend? Oh, man. Nothing much, Larry. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for a couple of minutes. I know you're busy. I know you're running, and I appreciate you stopping by for a moment. Just give me, give me an overview. I know you were – first of all, I, let me ask you this. When you heard that Dave Gettleman traded down the first time, what went through your mind? And then tell me what went through your mind when he did it again. 
Well, I was surprised, Larry, because Rashawn Slater was still at the board at the time, and I, and I thought that Rashawn Slater met a need for the Giants. I still feel like that offensive line needed an upgrade in terms of their overall talent base. You're talking about an offensive line that was among the worst last year in the NFL and pass block win rate. So with Rashawn Slater, arguably the best tackle still on the board at that point, I just thought it made sense for Dave Gettleman to make that move. But then when I saw who was trading up, when I saw it was Ryan Pace, the general manager of the Chicago Bears, making the move, I figured it would be for quarterback Justin Fields. And so I, I knew that Dave Gettleman was going to get a premium for that pick. So I just felt like, okay, Dave Gettleman didn't necessarily see the offensive line as a bigger, a bigger need than what the potential yield and return for trading that pick would be. So I thought the move made sense. I thought it was brilliant by Gettleman being able to acquire more draft capital. Chris, is it kind of unusual to be in the position like that where you're looking not only at this year but ahead and saying, you know what, we could use some more draft choices next year as well. Let me take this opportunity to stack the deck for next year. Well, here's the thing. They went into the draft with six picks. So you, you had to think that if the opportunity to trade down presented itself, it would make sense, right? And so I think Dave Gettleman realized that, and he traded it down not once but twice in the first two rounds of the draft. And he ended up coming up with great value in the selections that they did make in the first and second round. I love the pick of Kadarius Tony. I, I love what he brings to the table. He, he has a skill set that the wide receiver core for the New York Giants just doesn't have. I love being able to add a piece like Aziz Ojolari, an edge rusher that Patrick Graham can move all over the field as a part of that front seven on that defense. So I think that Dave Gettleman found some, some instant impact pieces while also being able to acquire more draft capital for future years. I just thought the way he worked the draft, especially early on, was masterful. Patrick Graham really impressed me last year, Chris, with what he was able to do with that defense and the pieces he moved around. I mean, you give him a piece like you mentioned and, and some other things that we're still going to do because you got undrafted free agents. You never know who else is going to come on and add to that giant team. Chris, as much as everybody talked about Joe Judge and what he brought to the table, and rightfully so, he did a, he did a pretty good job. I think Patrick Graham did a very good job at that defense last year. Oh, yeah, you got to give Patrick Graham some love. I mean, being able to have a top-10 scoring defense, and I think they were 11th in total defense, being able to have that when you have the 31st-ranked offense, that's saying something, Larry. I mean, that offense struggled to put together drive. They struggled to score a lot of points. So that defense was on the field an awful lot. And the fact that that defense was able to continue to get stops and able to keep ball games close, I mean, you got to give a lot of credit where credit is due. It's impressive to see what he was able to do. I'm looking forward to the encore of his second season as defensive coordinator with the Giants, just as the players gain more familiarity with the scheme, a better understanding of the concepts that he's trying to execute. I think that group is only going to continue to improve. And I'm very curious to see what's going to happen with this Giants offense this year. You mentioned how, how tough it was for them to score. and th But what was weird for them, Chris, was they, they had no trouble seemingly moving the ball between the 20s. It's when they got into the red zone. And listen, Galladay helps them there, tall receiver in the red zone. Uh, but now it's the speed you mentioned. And, Chris, if only Evan Ingram would hold on to the football, you guys, the Giants would be in good shape. <laughs> Yeah, the, Gi the Giants offense just struggled there, but, but you're going to have some struggles, especially in the red zone when the field gets condensed when you have struggles up front with your offensive line. And that's the part that has to get fixed. Now, in the second half of the season, that group ran the ball better, and you saw Daniel Jones being a part of that run game with the zone read concepts. I thought Jason Garrett did a great job of sprinkling that in there as things progressed. 
But, I mean, make no bones about it. That group has to improve in every single facet. Like, they have to get more explosive plays, and Kadarius Tony being a part of that offense is certainly going to help that, as well as getting Saquon Barkley back off the ACL injury. That offense has to get more explosive. So, moving the ball within the 20s is great, but being able to sustain drives, being able to stay on the field on third downs, being able to you know, capitalize once you get in the scoring zone, like, those are all things that the Giants offense has to get a lot better at. And I'm anticipating that happening with the addition of the skill position players that they have, um, Kadarius Tony in the draft and then Saquon Barkley coming back. But I'm still a little bit concerned about what that offensive line is going to look like. Mm. feels like Dave Gettleman is, is putting a lot of eggs in one basket, not adding to that group in the draft. I, I thought that was a little bit of an eye, a head scratcher, maybe raised an eyebrow a little bit. But um, I guess he's depending on the development of guys like Shane Lemieux and Andrew Thomas and Will Hernandez and Matt Parrott. Those guys are going to have to get a lot better in order for this offense to take a step forward. Or Daniel Jones is going to have to get rid of the ball a lot faster. <laughs> so he can move the Well, I think, the it, I, think, I, think, I think they work. I think it's hand-in-hand. Hand. I think Dave mm-hmm. Gettleman is, is banking on a hand-in-hand hand approach. And certainly having a guy like Kadarius Tony is going to help with that. Sterling Shepard, another stock receiver, he's going to have to get the ball out of his hands. Kyle Rudolph being a part of that offense as well, um, you know, being able to present a target early in the down for your quarterback and safety valve, that, that should help. But, but, Larry, I will say this, that offensive line is going to have to get a lot better, even if those eyes are getting open a lot quicker. The offensive line is going to have to be able to sustain blocks, especially in pass protection, if we're going to – be able to see the evolution of Daniel Jones. I hear you. That's the voice of Chris Candy, part of our morning show, DPHO Canteen Rothenberg. He's also on KJC. He's all over the place. It's Larry Hardesty <laughs> on 98.7 ESPN. All right, Chris, let's go to the other side. Let's talk about uh, what the Jets were able to do. And th- they had an interesting draft for me. They went heavy offense early and then heavy defense late. Well, yeah, and listening to Joe Douglas, he said that that's how the board fell. That's where they saw the value. Uh, it was on the offensive side of the ball. The one thing I will applaud him for is that he has a commitment to trying to surround Zach Wilson with as much talent as he possibly can. You saw what he did in free agency, being able to get him some weapons, signing Corey Davis, signing Keelan Cole, and then in the draft, being able to go out and get Elijah Barry Tucker early. They actually moved up to get him, which I thought was a brilliant move because they had a ton of draft capital. So making the move to get up in the draft, moving from 23 to 14 to get the best guard in the draft, to solidify that left side for Zach Wilson with him and Makai Beckton. I thought that was a brilliant move. And then getting Elijah Moore, the speedster out of Ole Miss, and then adding Michael Carter, a running back from, from North Carolina. I thought those were great moves. Again, adding to that talent base that Michael LaFleur has to work with with that offense. Um, it's only going to help Zach Wilson. It's only going to pave the way for them to be able to make sure that they give Zach Wilson the best chance to realize his full potential. Defensively, Chris, what do you see from this team? Now, this is tough. You know, they've been 3-4 forever, and now they're going to 4-3. Yep. Uh, what, what's, what's that verbiage like? What's that adjustment going to be like? Well, I, I think for the guys up front, it's, it's going to be a little bit of a relief because it's not a scheme that's relying on holding up blocks. When you play an odd front defense, those, those defensive linemen, they really, they really function more so like, like blockers for the linebackers. And so now those guys are going to be freed up a little bit, Larry. Those guys are going to be able to get in the gap, pin their ears back, and get some penetration into the offensive backfield. And I think that's something that every defensive lineman welcomes. It should be a much more aggressive defense on a whole, especially when you add guys like Carl Lawson to that group. 
um, the edge rusher from Cincinnati. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Added Sheldon Rankins as well. Hopefully he can stay healthy. Quinn and Williams, this, this upcoming year is going to be a big year for him. He had a breakout year last year, but I think he's going to assert his, his dominance as one of the uh, premier interior defensive linemen in this league. Um, the area of concern that I have for the Jets on defense, Larry, is on the back end. And you saw what they did in the draft. They added a lot of draft picks, and I think that's Joe Douglas, you know, getting a, getting a lot of lottery tickets in terms of trying to find guys that can help improve that group. But that's the area that you got to keep an eye on. They, they're going to run a cover three scheme on the back end. So that, that means that uh, late in the downs, especially in passing situations outside of the numbers, that's man-to-man coverage. You're going to have to find corners that can hold up in that scheme. And so I think that's the thing to keep an eye out on early. Bless Austin and Bryce Hall are the incumbents. I, I think that group leaves a little bit to be desired. We'll see, we'll see what happens with the rest of the offseason and in the training camp, whether or not they continue to try to fortify that group with veteran players. But the young guys that they drafted, some of those guys are going to have to come along and contribute early, Larry, because that's a group that really needs an upgrade in terms of talent. A lot of pressure on your front seven, right, to get pressure on the quarterback to help bail that second. No doubt out. about it. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Until those young guys figure it out, it's going to be up to those amigos up front to hunt and put pressure on the quarterback, make them a little bit better. Chris, off the top of your head, what were some of the big surprises from this draft that you take away? Um, you know, Larry, it, it wasn't necessarily a surprise to me because I expected it, but seeing what San Francisco did at three, mm. everybody had pegged Mac Jones being a guy ever since the 49ers made the move from 12 to three over a month ago. And just something about that didn't fit. You know, I felt like that was a big swing by Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch and for, for a player, for a quarterback that had a, a lower ceiling in comparison to all the other quarterbacks that we saw in the first round. So to me, if you're going to make that move, you're going to give up three first-rounders and a third-rounder to make that jump to get to number three overall. You want a player that has a high ceiling. And quite frankly, I think Trey Lance has just as high a ceiling as anybody in this class, including Trevor Lawrence. I I think the kid is a tremendous talent. A lot of evaluators have pegged him as the smartest quarterback in this draft. And he's only played 17 years, 17 games in FCS football. So I just, I think he's got a lot of physical tools that he brings to the table. It'll be real interesting to see how they bring him along, knowing that he really didn't play football last year. I know the story out of San Francisco is, you know, that Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be the starter. But if you think about it, can you afford to have Trey Lance miss two years of football? Mm-hmm. I'll see how that happens. I'll see it when I believe. I'll believe it when I see it. But as far as the player goes. I'm really excited about what he brings to the table. I know a lot of people said they were surprised by the pick just because the player is so raw. But I thought that was one of the bigger storylines on the draft uh, over this weekend. Well, the fact, Chris, as you mentioned when you talked to me a couple of weeks ago, that he's a young man who was able to call his own plays at the line of scrimmage, that's a big difference because a lot of college quarterbacks aren't doing that, Chris. No, a lot of them aren't. A lot of them are looking on the sidelines and they're seeing the coaches and the players, other players hold up those cards that have those uh, those signs on them. And this guy, Trey Lance, is is calling out the players in the huddle, a post-style offense in North Dakota State. And so a, a lot of evaluators, a lot of scouts, word was that they were impressed with his ability to, you know, run the operation. And that's a big deal when it comes to making the transition from college football to pro football. 
Like, you're going to have to be able to spit out the players in the huddle, get everybody to the line of scrimmage, make the checks based on the defense and go. And it feels like Trey Lance has a pretty good feel of that in comparison to the other quarterbacks that are in this class. So I would not be surprised to see Trey Lance be a, a week one starter this coming fall. Chris, always a pleasure, my friend. Keep up the great work in the morning. Tell the guys we say hello, and we'll talk soon. Thanks a lot for having me on, Larry. My pleasure. Anytime. The Larry Hardesty Show on 98.7 ESPN. Hour number two. Sunday afternoon edition of the show. Thanks for stopping by. You know the number. 1-800-919-3776. You also visit us on Twitter at Hardesty ESPN at ESPNNY. 98 underscore 7 FM. We've been talking about the NFL draft. We'll come back to that. We also have the Knicks and Nets who are underway right now. Leading the Milwaukee Bucks 35-23 late first quarter. Right now we're going to turn our attention to baseball. Yankees win today. They shut out the Tigers 2-0. Corey Kluber, who's found his rhythm, apparently. The Mets are in action tonight against the Philadelphia Phillies after their win yesterday. And during the week, as a Met fan, I read a brilliant article written by our colleague, ESPN senior writer Elizabeth Merrill, about the 69 Mets and how some of these players, the bond that they have and how some of them are suffering because of age right now and situations. And it really touched me because I I was in, show you my age, I was in elementary school during that Miracle Mets season. And yet this was a time when, you ready? The World Series was played in the afternoon. <laughs> One day, we actually had a teacher that put the game on in our classroom. He was a Met fan. And so there's a special bond, obviously. It's the first year that the Mets that were, you know, they won the championship. They've been laughed at and so on and so forth. So, you know, to read this article, I had to get Elizabeth on the line. So Elizabeth Merrill, ESPN senior writer, thanks for joining us here on the Larry Hardesty Show on 98.7 ESPN. Hey, Larry, thanks for having me. Elizabeth, what, what what was the genesis for you writing this story? What was the whole idea? What what got you going down this line? Well, so it was probably at some point last summer, um, you know, after COVID had sort of, you know, it was a few months after COVID had hit uh, the United States and uh, New York had, had suffered a, a lot of losses, especially with the older population, um, you know, other things that were going on in the news then, you know, there was this whole talk about how, you know, uh, there was talk to some politician or political people about how, you know, we should sacrifice the older population for the sake of the economy because COVID was mainly hitting the older population. And I, I sort of, I talked to a couple of my editors about, I, I wonder what it would be like to do a story about like an iconic team you know, from a while ago, who was grappling with COVID and their mortality. Um, and, and, you know, if they if they had bonds that kept them together and how they were handling, you know, they're as vulnerable as everybody else, you know. And uh, the other thing that was going on then was there was a big boom in sort of uh, baseball card collecting because everybody was at home. And so 
Um, I the six nine match was before my time, but I'd seen the movie uh, Frequency. It was like a two thousand movie. It's kind of cheesy, but mm-hmm. uh, you know it, it it flashes back and forth from that sixty nine Met season. And uh, I'd watched a video on them that they played in the nineteen uh, uh, during the nineteen two thousand nineteen fifty year reunion. And wow, that looked like it would have been so much fun to, mm-hmm. to watch to follow that team. Uh, they just uh, they were obviously the underdogs. They either finished ninth or tenth in their first seven years of existence, and they just came together. I mean, you know, they had maybe one transcendent player, Tom Seaver, and the rest of it was a bunch of guys who stepped up in clutch situations. And it sounds like, you know, the whole country was in love with the, that team, and you know, they represented the hope at a time when things weren't that great in the country either. So I just thought. I didn't know what I was going to get, but I just started calling players and I was just kind of hoping to give people an idea of, you know, what it's like for people to be in that vulnerable population where people are kind of considering them expendable. And, uh, and it, what I learned was that like, these guys are still close. A lot of them that, you know, mm-hmm. after all these years, they still, they still catch up with each other. There, there's still those bonds, which is, I thought was a, might be a pretty interesting story. Maybe it kind of, you know, provide some hope. Well, you know, Elizabeth, everybody loves the underdog, and there was no, yeah. there was no more of an underdog than that Met team. And really, when you look at it and you understand, you captured it extremely well. Tom Seaver was the star of that team. He was the franchise. Gil Hodges, the late Gil Hodges, came in as the manager, and he really galvanized that team. He pointed them in the right direction. But you pointed out, you got a couple of folks, and Art Shamsky is. He's an interesting guy in the sense of on that team, he was the left-handed batter. He was the first baseman. He also played the outfield some. Uh, They made a trade with Montreal in the middle of that year. They brought in Don Clendenin, so they had a platoon system at first base with the the righty Don Clendenin and the lefty Archamsky. But Archamsky was a guy who transcended this team in the sense of he hosted Sports Extra on, on, on WNDW on Fox 5, now Fox 5. He was uh, He was one of the guys who made the transition to TV. And him, I'm giving away a little bit of your article, you don't mind, Elizabeth. And him, (laughs) along with Bud Harrelson, who was, I mean, you go back to Bud Harrelson. He was, for the shortstop, he was that gutty, gritty guy. He was that that defensive guy. He was kind of a spark plug for that team. Great defensive player, hit solid hitter. And to read what you wrote about how he's suffering with Alzheimer's and how the team is and members of the team are rallying around him was, was a great read. Oh, well, thank you. And boy, you can rattle off a lot. I mean, you obviously know a lot about that team. It probably meant, I'm sure it meant a lot to you mm-hmm. during that time. I didn't know that about Art Shamsky that he did TV, yeah, you know, um, at the same time I covered the chiefs and, you know, I'm kind of an iconic guy. In Kansas City was Len Dawson. Oh, yeah. Because he was the quarterback for their first Super Bowl championship. And he did TV down there for a long time. And I found out that, yeah, he also did that when he played. Can you imagine that now, having, like, (laughs) the quarterback of your team, like, go and do the, you know, or do, like, a TV piece? It just seems so unreal. But it was those guys had to have part-time jobs, some of them, because they didn't get paid enough. Uh, It's unreal, you know, how they were able to – manage but they were obviously the kings of new york and those guys still are when they people can see them 50 some years later and recognize them and and you know and and shower a lot on them you know it's funny listen with with uh with social media some of them are doing tv shows (laughs) while they're playing (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
Some of them are. Yeah. Elizabeth Merrill is my guest. She's yeah. an ESPN senior writer. Did a brilliant article on uh, the 69 Mets and some of the challenges that, that they are facing. It's called Friendship Memories and the Year with the 1969 New York Mets. Elizabeth, as you were going through this and, and talking to these players and just going through balancing conversations with them in this pandemic era, what was that like? How, how are they dealing with it? Yeah, so I talked to some of those guys like six, six, maybe even seven times over the course of nine months. And for a guy like Ed Cranepool, um, who had uh, a kidney transplant the year before in 2019, you know, he's missing all the toes on his left foot. Uh, he's, you know, you talk about uh, people over 70 or whatever being vulnerable. I mean, he's got, you know, the trifecta, if you want to, if you will, as far as like with age and then, you know, with being, uh, with having the, the transplant, I guess that's only a double. But anyway, so he, he pretty much stayed inside. He was kind of a prisoner uh, in his own home. Him and his wife would just be inside pretty much every day, especially during those first three or four months. You know, being in New York now, I'm based in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. I probably can't relate to what that was like in New York, you know, in the city, especially when the pandemic started. Uh, I assume, you know, you're you're in kind of a small er everything that you love about New York. You kind of is it makes made everything so difficult during the pandemic, right? I mean, no mass transportation. So with him, he was just stuck inside and he'd been working. He was like 75 years old and he'd been working before that. He craved the human interaction. And and what a lot of these guys and anyone will tell you is the way to sort of stay young is to keep moving. And that obliterated everything that they did. And so he couldn't go to restaurants. He loved to go to restaurants. He couldn't work and he was stuck in his house. And it, it really takes a toll on your mental health. I think everyone can feel that right. Whether you're 20 or, or 70, but for these guys, walking outside, you know, could be a life or death situation. It could be for anybody of any age, but statistically, you know, when you're when you're battling health issues, in addition to that, uh, there's obviously you make a decision: or are you gonna are are you going to try to? And for a while, they didn't know when a vaccine would come, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's been a long year, but it, it was a lot of uncertainty. And I guess I just sort of wondered what it was like for people's parents too. Like, you know, some of my friends have parents that are of that age, and I kind of wondered how they were handling it. Were they visiting their parents? And so I, I just wanted, I guess, just a lot of things we do, you know, we're curious about things from personal experience. And I was just, I, I sort of was wondering how the older population was handling it and, and, and how, like, you know, and it's hard when there's things like that that are said, well, we should open everything up because it's just affecting older people. Uh, and, and so I just kind of wanted to gauge and the, uh, you know how it was for them. And I guess some of the most interesting things that I found from it is obviously everybody, you know, it doesn't matter if you've got fame or fortune, everybody is in the same boat in humanity. Uh, but also the thing that surprised me was just how close they still are, you know, that yeah. that's a, and it's not like that with every team, but when you're a team that shares something that special, you know, they played on other teams, some of those guys, and they don't maybe still keep in touch with those guys or definitely not five or six of those guys. But 
they went from being lovable losers and losing a bunch of games to winning it all. And of course that's going to bring you together when you have those shared experiences of being really bad and then the best, you know, in all of baseball. It's that us against the world mentality, right? And, you know, those are special moments that, and you're right, uh, Elizabeth, in covering sports as long as you have, you know, you see it. There's teams, (laughs) there's teammates that don't even speak to each other. (laughs) But it's okay because, you know, depending on the sport, that's, you know, as long as we're together on the court or on the field, wherever our battle is, that's what that's the way it is. We're okay that way. Otherwise, you know what, we'll we'll just, we go our separate ways afterwards. And it, it was, it was nice to hear and kind of, I'm speaking for me, but I'm sure many other Met fans of that era. It was nice for me to know that these guys are still, you know, around. They're still okay because sometimes you lose track of them. And the other thing, Elizabeth, is, and I'll say this to you in closing, is that this also we, we, we tend to compare our lives with theirs, right? We, we kind of look at events that coincided with that. And so yeah. it, 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 Looks at it makes us look at our mortality a little bit as well, Elizabeth. To be honest with you, sure. And I think this pandemic definitely accelerated that, right? That you think more and more about, you know, life and death, and and I guess the other thing that sort of I don't know. I, I hope to convey, especially with Buddy Harrelson, is that you know. Uh, when when someone is afflicted with some with Alzheimer's with something like Alzheimer's, I mean the the toll it takes on a family is tremendous. Um, uh, and I dealt with that with a parent, and um, you know I don't think anybody realizes what that's like until you're in it, and you yeah. and it's just like what are we going to do? You know what? How are we going to care for this? Some people don't have the money to do that. A lot of people don't, and um, you know I didn't want it to be. I, I, I definitely didn't want it to be a dark, depressing story. I mean, I think if anything, in some ways, it's uplifting that these guys are supporting each other, getting on Zoom calls. Um, and, and you can bet when this is cleared up uh, and we're heading in that direction that they'll be together again. I mean, these guys go to fantasy camp. You know, they're, uh, I think the Tom Stever statue is going to be unveiled this year, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm sure there will yeah. be some of them there. They, they I mean they do things together, and I yeah. If if there was a team that I love, that I I've always wondered, you know, hey, do these guys really like each other? Or are they just like getting paid to just play baseball? <laughs> and, and it's obvious that these guys really have a strong affection for each other. I mean, you know, are going to see Buddy and uh, and Cleon, you know, uh, Ed Cranepool calling Cleon when there's a hurricane out in Alabama, and. and uh, asking him if he wants to fly up there, him and his wife, and stay mm-hmm. with them. I mean, that's that's pretty cool, 52 yeah. years later, that you've still got that going on. It really is. It really is. Elizabeth, you did a great job. You balanced the, the you. taking us through what it's like with – but you know they're still here. It's not a totally depressing story. It's 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 life. It, it's the way it is in this pandemic era. And for me, as a Met fan, as a young Met fan at that time, uh, living through that, it it really it really brought back some memories. So thanks for taking a couple of minutes to keep up the great work. Thank you, Larry. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to talk to you, Elizabeth Merrill. And once Thank again, you. if you want to uh, check out the article, it's on ESPN.com, Friendship, Memories, and a Year with the 1969 New York Mets. The Larry Hardesty Show on 98.7.
ESPN. Hour number three. Gorgeous Sunday afternoon. Thank you for stopping by on a busy sports day. 1-800-919-3776. That's our number. Also, you can reach us out on Twitter at Hardest to ESPN at ESPNNY98 underscore 7FM. Right now, I get a chance to talk to a friend of the show who's doing a tremendous job up in the 36th Senate District. He is New York State Senator Jamal T. Bailey, dad, husband, great candidate, politician, but more importantly for our information, he a Nick and Met fan. That's why he on today. Hey, Jamal. <laughs> Larry, what's going on, brother? Free Larry. Yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> Happy to be up here, man. What's up, Jamal? How you been, my friend? Uh, I'm I'm doing great, Larry. Thank you again for having me up here. Excited about the Knicks and the Mets, and just excited to be uh, to be able to bring our city back, bring our state back from uh, the scourge of COVID. And when the last time we spoke, we were in the midst of everything oh, that was um, disastrous and, and, and crazy. And um, and thanks to you and your listeners and, and and everybody in New York, we've been able to build back better. So we still got some some more to go, but I'm I'm grateful to where we are. From where you sit, what does when, what what the sports do, uh, winning like the Knicks are when you don't don't expect it. Brooklyn is is you know arguably in conversation for a world championship. Yankees and Mets going strong. Uh, what does what does what does sports do in in a situation like we're in coming coming starting to come out of this pandemic and just while we're in the middle of it. Listen, my my my, my buddy Jason Klingscales has coined the phrase "world of uh, sports is the world's greatest social currency," and it, that's that's never loomed larger than in COVID nineteen in the midst of this pandemic. It is something that brings us together. It unifies us. It electrifies the city. In the case of the Knicks, and as you said, yes, I'm a Knicks fan. I'm also a Mets fan, um, but. No disrespect to the Yankees, Giants, Rangers, even the Mets. When the Knicks are good, there is no better feeling in New York City. Um, like there is no greater electricity. We're we're a few games over five hundred. We're nine and well, ten and one in the last eleven, and it is like uh, it, it is indescribable. So that feeling that the New York Knicks give us on a regular in a regular year, magnified tenfold because of what we've been facing the last few months and in the last year. What's been the biggest surprise uh, about the Knicks to you as a fan? MVP Julius Randle. Um, you know, and, and I know that's, that might be a hot take, Larry, but if you look at what is valuable and who is valuable, we lost the game to the Suns because of the Hall of Fame uh, legendary CP3, but it was also because Julius Randle had a less than stellar game. When he bounced back against the Bulls, we won going away. If you look at what he's done in the month of April and his consistency, his leadership, not missing games, Julius Randle has always had that all-NBA talent, but he's been able to put it together, together on the tips, and I'm just, I'm just excited. I think like, like he's been being able to real unlock his talent has been the, the greatest surprise to me. And when you look at this roster, I mean, this, this is the fun thing for me, Jabal. Looking at this team, right, and at the beginning of the season, you know, we're sitting there like, boy, if, they, if we only had some three-point shooters on this team, if we only had some three, some guys. Are, and then you look, and all of a sudden, this team during that win streak, they're shooting like 40 to 50% from the three. It's like, who are these guys? 
but uh, the, the shooting and the shooting has been incredible. And Alec Burks has been out, and so I'm even more bullish as a as a Knicks fan that we've been doing this without Mitch, without Alec, and we've been able to put it together quickly. Is um, uh, another sports another sports system? We're not going to say their name with that D plus draft grade that they gave us for uh, for quickly. We're not going to say who they are, but that's not looking too good right now because that young man is is showing that he has some serious skills. Uh, Derek Rose has been able to unlock Obi Toppin. He's been able to teach him um, so many so many things. I think on the floor, you know, when, when you have a, a floor general. I'm I'm really excited about the state of this team, and it's and it's not just those guys. It's the Nerlens Noels uh, stepping in. It's even the Norvell Pels. It's even it, everybody knows their role on the team. Fifteen men up, fifteen men down. It's a beautiful thing to see as an fan. Yeah, and, and you know what? It's uh, it's beautiful and it's fun because it was unexpected, Jamal, and that's what makes it all the sweeter. Absolutely. Absolutely. I definitely, I, you know, look, I, as a Knicks fan, this is, we always say this is going to be our year. And we always feel that we're going to be competitive. But, you know, you, you know, if you've been a Knicks fan as long as I've been a Knicks fan, you know, you, you've had to kind of wish through and hope that certain players panned out when it was clear that they, that they weren't. But it's the players, it's the combination of the system, it's the leadership, and it's the coaching, developmental coaching, Kenny Kane. Yeah, I, I, I am. I, I've never been so glad that somebody didn't leave the Knicks, right? I'm so yeah. glad that he stayed with us. I'm, glad, I'm, I'm, I'm sad that Mike Woodson left Indiana, but you know, Woody had to go back home. That was a, that was an opportunity that he couldn't, that he couldn't pass up. But being able to develop players and now being the destination where, if you listen, you listening to rumors or individuals talking about the, the sole sources speak, people want to come to New York and play for the Knicks. No better feeling as a Knicks fan right now. Absolutely. That's the voice of New York State Senator Jamal T. Bailey. You're listening to the Larry Hardesty Show here on 98.7 ESPN. Uh, Jamal, I'm going to step away from sports for a second just to touch on something sad. And that was the loss of DMX uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, of course, he is from one of the areas that you serve up in that Mount Vernon area. And I was reading and going through some of the reports about, you know, how devastated the area was and, how they all were mourning and whatnot. Just, just take us through that, and and what does that do to a community when you lose somebody of that nature, of that stature? Well, music is is very similar to sports in that it can it can galvanize people, it can bring people together that um, may not see in like minds, like may not have like minded thought processes in other areas. So to lose someone like a DMX who, who captured, I think what reality was. And, and some of his music was uncomfortable. Um, some of the lyrics may have been things that people didn't want to hear, but he expressed who he was. He expressed what the people in his community felt. And he did it in an incredibly uh, skilled fashion. And losing someone like that at such an early age who has meant so much to the development of hip-hop music, one, as a, as a huge hip-hop fan, I, I am saddened by the loss, but as a as someone who represents Westchester County and knowing countless people who have um, encountered DMX and many people who just knew him as, as just regular old Earl, who was always down and was always willing to lend a helping hand and quite frankly, didn't want his name attached to the help that he was giving because it was just something that he felt that he wanted to do. And so, you know, it's a big loss for hip hop. It's a bigger loss for, for us in New York. Um, and, 
even greater loss for his family, if we're being completely frank, Larry. But, um, you know, his music was was something that will leave a legacy, and, and, and uh, may his memory be a blessing. Yeah, and especially for some of the young people, right? It's it that have the visions, right, of of being successful in music or successful in sports, be it on the field or off the field. Successful in music, being behind the mic or behind the scenes in mixing or producing or whatnot. It's we need these examples, right, Jamal, to keep us going to let us know that you know our dream is possible. Our dream is can be a reality. Listen, I, I think I think about it, and I don't. I wouldn't compare myself in any shape, form, or fashion to the great DMX. And I'm a kid from, from the Bronx, uh, and, I, and, I, and I went to the same schools that many of your listeners maybe may have gone to and many young kids may be going to. If I can be a state senator, you can be a state senator. If I can go to law school, you can go to law school. If DMX can be successful, so can you. Um, I just wanted to touch on something about DMX that, that what he's done is touch on so many societal issues that we still need to Correct. You know, as my job as a legislator, our job is to make sure that we're passing legislation and, and providing funding for, you know, certain societal things that need correcting and need fixing. Um, childhood trauma, serious, something that we need to make sure that we're paying attention to and we're paying more attention to it now. Um, substance abuse disorder, something also that we need to make sure that we're paying attention to, to so that we can help people through uh, difficult times, especially in the wake of COVID-19, Larry, when so many people are feeling down and out and feeling despair, it's important to know that people love you. Even if they don't know you, they love you. And that there's help available. That we will get through this, we'll get through it together. Now, Jamal, where did you get your love for baseball, my friend? I know you say you're from the Bronx, but where, where did you get your love for baseball? And being from the Bronx, how are you not a Yankee fan? <laughs> oh, so I, I became a Mets fan, right? Like, So I grew up, I, I was born in 82. And so the Mets were good in the early 80s. Um, and so it was because of Doc and Daryl, really, right? Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry, 16 and 18, my favorite numbers growing up. Those were my guys. Um, I, I absolutely loved them. But I, I just I liked the colors orange and blue. I also just like National League Baseball because American League Baseball as a kid didn't make sense to me. Like, why is there somebody that is going to hit for the pitcher? I think everybody should play equally. That These are things that as a, as a five- or six-year-old getting into baseball, um, that, that, that you wonder about. And also, what, what really sold me, right? And, and I had, I had my, my dad had bought me a, uh, a Met hat. And shout out to my dad because my dad's a Yankee fan, but he allowed me to be a Met fan because he, you know, as, good, as a good parent, you got to let your kids go where you let them go, and I'm grateful to it. Uh, he took me to Harlem League one time. I might have been three or four years old. And um, I met Walt Clyde Frazier there. And Walt Clyde Frazier signed my Met hat at Harlem Week. And at that point, I was a Mets fan because he signed my hat and I thought it was special. And I became a Knicks fan because of Walt Clyde Frazier. My dad told me that he was a legendary Knicks player. So right at that moment, Walt Clyde Frazier might have made me a Knicks and a Mets fan. But um, but if, if, I think it's a little bit of all of that. Um, growing up, you know, and, and again, when I was growing up in the Bronx, a little like the Yankees, like, until the core four came up, the Yankees weren't that good. It, like they had Don Mattingly, who who was Donnie Baseball, who was their guy, but they had more. They 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 they, they had Dave Winfield and Jesse Barfield, but they they didn't have the Doc and Daryl and Keith and 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 David Cones and, and and all of those guys who were exciting for the Mets. So um, that's that's how I became a Mets fan, and you know I'm 
I'm stuck with things, picking things. People pick things. How you think? Of, what do you think about the team this year? How do you think they're going to do? And are you com- confident that the, this hitting is going to turn around? Because I'm a little concerned, Jamal. Me too. Uh, like, look, we we have Jacob Degrom, who is having like one of the best historical periods that a pitcher has ever had. And I and I tweeted it a couple of days ago. And I have to internally apologize to Doc Gooden because Doc is my favorite Mets pitcher of all time. But Jacob Degrom is just different. Like his command of the game, being able to switch speeds up with different pitches being able to hit triple digits or close to it in the ninth inning. Like, it's just, he's just different. And I'm concerned that we're wasting, um, that we're going to waste his, his prime. Um, I, I, yes, we got, we got the, the, the hitting has to pick up. Um, and I, and I think that Lindor is too talented. Um, he's, in, he's incredibly talented. He's one of the, the, the most gifted players that I think that we've had in quite some time on the offensive side of the ball. I think it'll come around. I'm, I'm confident it will. Um, Dom Smith will come around. Conforto, he, he just looks like he's swinging the bat better. He's getting better at bats and seeing the ball better. Um, uh, J.D. Davis as well. I, I'm, looking, I, I'm looking forward to more offense coming out. Maybe, maybe, maybe the Mets are waiting for it to get warm before they start hitting. But either way, I think we're going to be okay. I look for this to be a fantastic summer baseball wise. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm keeping my eye on the Yankees. I'm, I'm obsessed with the Mets, keeping my eye on them. And I think both teams are going to start hitting. And I think it's going to be, this could be a very special sports summer uh, with, with both baseball teams doing well. Let's see if the Knicks make a long run. Nets should make a long run into the postseason. Jamal, we should have that as a background to help us get through towards the end of this COVID-19 situation and back to, whatever this new normal is going to be that we're looking at. I, I agree. And, as, and to your point about the Knicks and the Mets and, and how in the Yankees as well, in, in the Brooklyn Nets, um, it's going to galvanize the city, no matter who you root for, um, you know, like uh, going back and forth is all in good fun. Um, whatever team it is that you root for, uh, it's something to rally around, something to get behind. It's something to, um, to cheer for when you've had a tough day at the office or a tough day at home, or you're still dealing with trauma from um, the, the, the loss of a loved one. So look, sports is going to continue to get us out. Uh, I, I think it is. And, 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 and I hope, and I hope that the Knicks can replicate a Miami heat bubble run. Right. I think we've got that kind of team, right. I'm, I'm hopeful that we have that kind of team, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I would, I don't know how much I bet in Vegas on it, but you know, I'm hopeful. Listen, that's important. I, I never thought that we would be having this conversation, Jamal, about you know the Knicks this late in the season. Meaningful games, meaningful games in May for a team that just a couple of years ago, their win total for the year ended in a one. <laughs> Look, I, it's, it, is, it is a testament to coaching and having a, a, a individuals who are buying in. Um, Julius Randle and what he learned from the late great Kobe Bryant about when you get to a city, the first thing you do is find a gym to, to work out in and how that hard work is contagious. And I think that it is, right? I think that, you know, I think it's rubbed off in the right way on the young people on the team. Riley, keep in mind, this Knicks team is still incredibly young. Julius Randle was 26, and I think he's going to be 27. Um, Derrick Rose, as, as long as he's been around, he's only 32 years old. We have a really young team, a really young core, and if they grow together and we let them grow together, I think they could be incredibly special. I agree with you. 
Jamal, thanks for taking a couple of minutes out. I know uh, Mrs. Bailey had some stuff for you to do on a Sunday, so we thank you for taking a couple of minutes from the family. Tell I said thank you, and we'll talk again soon, my Absolutely. friend. Absolutely. Larry, thank you for having me, man. I really appreciate it. All right, my pleasure, my friend. Talk to you soon. Jamal Bailey, state senator of the 36th District up in the Bronx, covers Mount Vernon in the Bronx, Westchester, that area. Good sports, man.